The views expressed on the following broadcasts do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT, Take 12 Radio, or our affiliates. The opinions on this show should not be considered as medical, psychological, or professional advice and are those of the host, co-host, and guest. Take 12 Radio and KHLT Recovery Broadcasting are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. And this is your host, the Monty Man, with a very special broadcast this week from the best of Take 12 Recovery Radio. What a treat. What a great share you are about to witness with my friend and one of the most downloaded circuit speakers in the world of the 12 steps, Mr. Chris S. I've entitled this the face-eating demon, and I think you'll know why uh, very, very soon. So without further ado, here's Chris. My name is Chris. I am an alcoholic. (laughs) On or around December 28th, 1989, the grace of God separated me from alcohol, and that was a good thing, not only for myself, but for anybody in the same town as I was in. Um, It was absolutely a brutal detox. I remember getting to a point of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. It talks about that jumping off place in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, where we can no longer see ourselves living or dying, drinking or not drinking. It just looks like there's just nothing, there's just no future. And I was at that point, and I had done some things that I'll talk about later that were, uh, were very disturbing to me. And I just made a decision, I just, I, can't, I just can't drink anymore. And I started to detox. And I remember for about three days, I was flopping around on the living room floor, detoxing. Um, I was hallucinating. Uh, my pulse rate was like 2,000 over 2 million. Uh, there was animals running around the floor. There was bigger animals scraping on the house to try to get in. And a demon came out of the ceiling. I remember laying on the couch and looking up, and this big demon comes down the ceiling to eat my face. Okay? And I remember, I remember just screaming out, God, help me! And the demon disappeared, which was a good thing. And, uh, and the minute I could, the minute I could... Um, I got out of the house and went back to AA, which I had tried and didn't work. Uh, But again, it was a willingness born out of desperation. I want to start my story um, in an early point. Um, I've written a lot of inventory over the years, and one of the times, one of the additional exercises that I was asked to do when I was doing a fear inventory was not only list the fear and why you have the fear, but list the first time in your life you can remember having that fear. List, list the first realization of that fear in your life. And I had, I had fear of a social situation or whatever. And, it, and I thought back and I remembered back the first time I was, um, I was afraid or I had that anxiety that we have, that self-centered fear. And it was when my mother was dropping me off to kindergarten, okay? Um, I'm five years old. <clears throat> she throws me in the car. She drives me across town. She opens up the door and she goes, there's the kindergarten classroom, see you later, and kicks me out of the car. I'm like five years old. I hadn't gotten out much, hadn't been on my own very often, you know what I mean? And uh, I remember standing up on the hill looking down at the kindergarten, and the kids are playing, they already know each other, you know how that is, they're like playing kickball and tag, and they're friends already. And I'm looking down and I'm saying, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. 
I can't do this. What if they don't like me? What if I say something stupid? You know, what if they make fun of me? I mean, I had all these fears. I'm thinking all of the, all these thoughts about, you know, negative uh, consequences of going. And <clears throat> for the first time that I, that I can remember, I acted as if everything was okay inside of me. And I walked down there and I did the kindergarten thing. But <clears throat> I was totally uncomfortable with myself. I had this anxiety, this, this, this worry, you know, this self-centered fear. They talk about it in the book, The Bondage of Self. And <clears throat> I went ahead and I did the kindergarten thing. And I was going through school. And, you know, I never felt like it was in the right place with the right people doing the right thing. It just, it was just never working for me. And I think around seventh grade or something like that, um, I decided with, with some friends of mine that we were going to cut school and go back to my house and drink. Uh, none of us had ever done this before. It was like we were going to be bad kids, you know. It was very, very cool. And so we did that. We all cut school. We went, we went back to my house, and uh, nobody was home. <clears throat> they were at work. So I remember grabbing a bottle of Four Roses whiskey off, of, uh, off the shelf, and you know, I didn't, there was no one in my family that was really hard liquor drinkers. They would get them as presents or whatever. This thing had been sitting up there for I don't know how long. I had to blow the dust off of it. Um, mainly beer drinkers in my house. But I brought it down. I didn't know anything about drinking. I'm six years old. I don't know anything about drinking. But I remember watching the John Wayne movies. Peter was talking about John Wayne, the man's man. Remember the John Wayne movies? He would bust into the saloon. He'd go up to the bartender, he'd go, bartender, whiskey. And the bartender would take out the bottle of whiskey and pour a big glass of whiskey. And John would just drink the whole thing down, grab the bottle out of the bartender's hand and, and go down and sit at the table <clears throat> until he had to shoot somebody or something, right? And he'd just sit there and he'd drink. So, okay, that's how you drink. So I took out three water glasses and I filled them full with Four Roses whiskey. Now, there's, there's some identification going on here. That, that stuff is brutal, drinking it warm. I don't think that's how you're supposed to drink it. Anyway, <clears throat> so I'm sitting there with three guys. Now, uh, two guys. Uh, the two other guys that I'm with never became problem drinkers, never became alcoholic, anything like that. To my knowledge, I, I knew them for years. And here's the reaction they had to the alcohol. They drank about two-thirds of their glass, and they'd had enough. You ever drink with people that have enough when you're drinking out there? Isn't that terrible? <laughs> You've had enough. Enough doesn't even make sense to an alcoholic. What is enough? There is never enough. You've had enough? Yeah, I gotta, I gotta work tomorrow. I gotta go home. Go home? It's only 11 o'clock. Let's go to the city, you know? Let's go, let's party! And that's the way I always was. But anyway, they, they had enough, and they sat back and they watched the show. Okay? Because I drank mine, I drank theirs, and I finished off the bottle. And I went into my first blackout. Which, if anybody in here doesn't know what a blackout is, it's a whole period of time that you can't remember that you usually do very stupid things in. And they, and they get to tell you about it the next day, you know, with much amusement. Uh, anyway, I got drunk. I went into a blackout. I trashed the house, and I, I passed out, and I woke up in a field, and not knowing what had happened, you know. And I started to get one of those nuclear hangovers, you know, the type of hangovers that are just, you know, your first hangover when you're just like, you're puking on yourself, you know, you're just a mess. Um, and, you know, I was as sick as a dog. Now, what happened from that moment on was I started to plan when I was going to drink again. Now, why would I do that, you might ask, if it made me so sick? If eating a rutabaga would have made me that sick, I would have been able to stay away from rutabagas the rest of my life. I wouldn't need Rutabagas Anonymous. I wouldn't need to get a rutabaga-eating sponsor. You know, I wouldn't have to make coffee, you know, at, at rutabaga meetings. I would have a sufficient mental defense against the rutabaga. But what happened was, you know that scared kindergartner? 
that was inside me who was all just repressed and anxious and everything? Well, once I started drinking that Four Roses whiskey, that kindergartner disappeared. And all of a sudden, I was larger than life. I was fearless. I was funny. I was good looking. You know, I was the cool guy around here. Instantly, you know, in that bottle of Four Roses was all of that. There, were, there was dancing lessons in that bottle of Four Roses. You know what I'm saying? That Four Roses offered me everything I'd been looking for in life. All of a sudden, I found the tool to cope that I'd been looking for my whole life. All of a sudden, now I know how I can fit in because all of you are always comfortable and I'm always uncomfortable. That's really what I thought. You know, I was comparing your outsides to my insides. So I start, I start to plan how I'm going to drink. Now, I made a, a permanent decision, which I never broke, never to drink warm Four, four Roses whiskey again. <laughs> If you put a glass in front of me right now, there'd be a Pavlovian wretch response, you know, you know, from that first experience. But I, I, I discovered Boone's Farm apple wine. I, dis I discovered Budweiser. Yeah, Boone's Farm. Yeah, there's, 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 there's a drink for you. Strawberry Hill. I, yeah, there you go. Oh, man. Uh, I, you know, so I started to experiment with some of these things, and I recognized that you know maybe with the beer and the wine I wouldn't go into a blackout or cause trouble or trash houses. So right from the get go, I'm like 14. I'm already planning when I'm going to get get drunk the next time. Now the drinking age was 21, so there were some logistical difficulties I had to overcome. Like, who was going to buy it? Where was I going to get it? Where, were you, where was I going to drink it? But I started to plan all these drunks because I had found the elixir of life. It actually was, was the one thing that got rid of that fear. So I started, I started to become preoccupied with alcohol. Where was I going to drink? I'm going out Friday night. Now, I come from a really smart family. I have a brother and sister. They're both college professor PhDs, my mother and father, both graduate level, Phi Beta Kappa, it's a ridiculously smart family. Um, and as I start to become preoccupied with alcohol, I start to not pay attention to a lot of things in my life, like schoolwork and things like that, you know? Uh, I ended up graduating second stupidest kid in my graduating class. <laughs> there was a guy who beat me who couldn't read or write, you know? I got like a D minus minus and graduated from high school. Now, I didn't recognize that there was a slow progression going on. I didn't recognize that the preoccupation was that with alcohol was you know, becoming an obsession. Somewhere along the line, you cross that line from preoccupation to obsession. And once you've crossed that line, you ain't going back with human, will, human willpower. You're not, you're not going to turn the corner and just decide to, to do the, the about face that Bill talks about. It's just not going to happen. And I don't know where that line was because by the time I wanted to quit drinking, many years later, it was already way too late for me to be able to do it. But anyway, uh, it, it never occurred to me. I, I never said to myself, you know, I'm becoming preoccupied with alcohol. If I keep going this way, I might not get into the college of my choice. You know, I didn't say that. You know what I said? You know what the alcoholic's war cry is? Who cares? Or leave me alone. Or get off my back. It's none of your business. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. You know, the alcoholic war cries. I wanted no part of anybody that wanted to interfere with the way I was living my life. And, you know, it, it got bad. I, you know, I, uh, I got involved with a lot of things besides alcohol. Uh, I, I, was, I started drinking in the very late 60s, and my, my early drinking was in the 1970s. Do I need to tell you there were other things around in that period of time? No. I mean, there was all kinds of drugs, all kinds of drugs. You know, there, there, there'd be somebody with drugs at, at the smoking area in the morning, and I'd go, what was that? You know? And it, I didn't care. This one time, this guy brought in a bag of belladonna. That, they used to use that for alcoholism treatment. Now, belladonna is a poisonous weed that like, grows out in the field. And it has like really bad hallucinogenic properties and stuff, right? So I remember, oh, that's belladonna. Well, what is that? It's belladonna. I'll give you some. I ate a bunch of it. I ended up getting paranoid and going partially blind that day, you know? 
And, uh, you know, it was temporary, but I remember going back to school the next day, and everybody, everybody was standing around going, hey, did you go blind too? You know, it was crazy. And then, you know, the same guy brings in a big sack of these pills. I go, what are those? He goes, they're qualudes. So I go, qualudes? I go, how many should you take? He goes, three or four. Can you imagine? Three or four. For anybody that doesn't know what a quaalude is, a quaalude is like a six-pack of beer in a pill form. So if you do three or four right away, it's like drinking a case of beer in 30 seconds. You know what I mean? It was ugly. It was ugly. I, I remember like walking down the hallway, hanging on to the lockers like this. And there was like, like 70 of us that took three or four quaaludes. The ambulance was in and out. I, re I remember making a break. Finally, finally, in third period, this guy, Harry, who'd been eating them, raises his hand. Harry's never raised his hand, ever. <laughs> this is history class, okay? He raises his hand. I go, oh, no. You know, Harry's like, and, oh, Mr. Bush, you know, the, the Mexican-American War reminds me of this Superman episode when he found the Mole Man. So he's... He's relating the, the, the Mexican-American War to the Mole Man episode on Superman. I, I, I got to get out of here, you know. This is too much. And uh, I make a break for the woods. And I forget that the door I go out of faces the 400 wing. So like, like 900 of my peers get to see me try to make a break for the woods. Okay. <laughs> I thought I was doing a good job. It took me like 15 minutes to go 100 yards. I finally get out to the woods, you know, and there's people out there holding on the trees. It was just, it was really, really ugly. You know, and there was just, I had some really, really bad, I always took too much. I was always the guy that was out of control. And drinking was everywhere. Drinking was everywhere during this process. Uh, uh, drinking was the one constant. A lot of times I would use some of these things to enhance my drinking experience, prolong my drinking experience, manage my drinking experience, you know, take away the hangover. But the one thing that was always constant was, uh, was the alcohol. Now, if you're a blackout drinker and you don't care, you just want everybody to get off your back, a lot of things happen. I started crashing cars. And, uh, you know, I was always the final owner of every car I had. <laughs> I had to ask my sponsor how to sell a car when I got sober. All I knew was take the title to the junk man. Take the title to the junk man. That's all I knew. I would get upset when I hit you if you had like a BMW. I, I remember running up to this guy and going, what the hell's the matter with you buying a car like this? This is like a $25,000 car, you know, what kind of trouble this is going to be for me. I got, I got a $100 car here. I'll just throw it away. I get another one. What are you thinking? You know, it was like, we have bizarre perspectives. Anyway, you know, I crashed a lot of cars. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I remember this, I remember this one time I misjudged go cutting across oncoming traffic. I, I, you know, you know how it is. I, this was a time when I was doing quaaludes and whiskey and, uh, that interferes with your capacity to, to make judgments supposedly. And, uh, and, you know, and I got T-boned and rolled down the road. And that was, that was really ugly. I ended up escaping from the hospital. And, you know, that was bad. Um, but I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one story. This is, my, this is the last DWI I had. Cops were always hassling me. All right, here's the last DWI. I get pulled over because I'm, like, in the wrong lane or something. You know, he pulls me over. I am so drunk. He goes, license, registration, insurance card. I am so drunk. I, you know, I'm, I'm in the glove compartment, you know, struggling around. Finally, I, you know, it's like a, two or three minutes are going, but finally I just, the hell with this, and I grab the entire contents of the glove compartment and hand it to the cop, all right? There's maps and tissues and, you know, pencils and combs and everything. And he's like, out of the car, out of the car, please. Sorry. You know, gets, takes me, gets me out of the car, you know, and I remember, um, takes me to the police station, and I remember him doing the ABCs with me. You know, like, I'm, I'm this close to a blackout. I was so drunk. I remember doing the ABCs, and I remember nailing the ABCs. Okay? I nailed them, okay? So, you know, and they videotaped me and all this stuff. Now, 
So I get a lawyer the next day, and I go, I know I got the ABCs. We're going to fight this. We're going to fight this. So I hire, I hire a $1,500 attorney. That's a lot of money back in, like, 1982. I hire a, a $1,500 attorney, and, he, you know, he shows up. He's all suited up, and we're going to go. We're going to go to the police station and view the evidence. You know, we need to see the tape. Has anybody in here ever seen your DUI tape? Did you need therapy after that like I did? I was horrified. Yeah, I got the ABCs right. It was like this. You know, and meanwhile, the $1,500 lawyer is like, you know, he's, he's got he's to act, you know, he's $1,500, he's got to act proper. And this is a travesty. I'm like cringing. They've got me walking the line. They've got me walking the line, and my arms are over here on the wall. And they're like, Mr. Schroeder, you're not supposed to have your arms on the wall walking the line. I mean, it was horrible. It was just, it was just a debacle from hell. And I'm just cringing, you know. And the cop who handed us the tape was cracking up, you know, when he had it. <laughs> they probably watching it during break, you know. For, but, but here's the, here's the, here's the worst part. In the end, they go, okay, Mr. Schroeder, you know, we're going to turn off the camera now. Is there anything you'd like to say before we shut the camera off? So I look at the camera, right, and I go like this. And the lawyer, the lawyer goes, blah, and he just starts laughing. You know, he'd held it in check until then. He just, blah, he goes, if there was any chance at all of ever being this, you just blah, blah. And I, I'm like, I'm like, I guess we're gonna plea this one, aren't we? You know? <laughs> yes, we are. You know, the cops are always hassling me. Oh man. So there was all kinds of consequences and all kinds of crazy things, but the one constant was the alcohol solved my spiritual problem. You know. The alcohol made me feel comfortable with myself and comfortable with my environment. So no matter what the consequences were happening out there, I had to overlook them and I had to keep on going and I had to keep drinking. Now, uh, I ended up moving down to, uh, moving down to Florida. Uh, a friend, you know, I, I'd taken a, a year off in between high school and, and nothing, just to, <laughs> you know, just to, just to kind of mellow out and... Uh, and, you know, I started noticing that everybody was disappearing. These are my buddies, my party buddies. They're, they're disappearing. They're, you know, they're, they're, get, they're getting married or, you know, they're calming down or they're getting jobs or they're going off to college. And, you know, there wasn't, I didn't have my friends to drink anymore. So, you know, uh, my, my drinking base is shrinking. And I decided maybe I should do something. And this guy comes home and he goes, uh, man, I'm in college. And I go, well, where are you going? Where are you going? He goes, University of South Florida, man, it's great. There's a bar in every campus, and all the drugs come through Key West, you know. And I'm like, I'm like, the application was in the mail that afternoon. I didn't even know what kind. Of, I didn't even know what kind of college it was. You know, could have could have been a cheerleading college for all I know, you know. And uh, and I, I end up down there. I end up down there, and. Uh, Here's a, here's a record. This has got to be a record. This is like a Doonesbury-esque thing. I spent three and a half years and got six credits. <laughs> I would take all these classes and then, you know, oh, man, this is, they want me to do homework, you know? It's like tests. And, um, and so, so, I, so I dropped the classes. And, and, you know, I got some really lousy jobs. I ended up with, uh, with a wife somewhere in, in this. Uh, I had proposed to my girlfriend in a blackout, supposedly. And, uh, and we, ended up, we ended up getting married. And she was a beautiful Al-Anon, I swear. She was absolutely wonderful. She, she grew up in, uh, in an alcoholic family. Mother, father, both alcoholics. All her brothers are alcoholics. Uncles, alcoholics. Everybody's alcoholics, alcoholics. So, like, when she hooked up with me, it was like, home! You know what I mean? <laughs> How can I be codependent today? And uh, it, was, it was wonderful. It, was, it worked. She thought about me as much as I did. So that was my... <laughs> That was my one requirement, you know. You gotta, you gotta be obsessed with me. So, uh, so uh, you know, 
She's Catholic, okay? So guess what happens nine months to the nanosecond after we get married? We have our daughter, okay? You could have set the atomic clock to this. And uh, uh, so here I am. I'm now a husband and a father. And I've got friends that don't even have names. They're like Weezer and Green Man, you know? These are like the, my partying buddies, you know? That my, and she wanted all this unreasonable stuff. She wanted me to get a job and put insurance on the cars and, you know, come home at night, you know? And it, it just was, it was brutal for me, you know? And, uh, and it wasn't really going very well. And, you know, a couple of things happened, a couple of car crashes, a couple of debacles. And she said, okay, I've had enough. I mean, you know, she had even had enough. She was, she was like a black belt, uh, uh, unrecovered Al-Anon, and she had had enough. And she ended up leaving and uh, moving back to New Jersey. And that was some of, some of the worst drinking of my life I spent in Tampa, Florida, uh, somewhere, somewhere around 1981, just drinking like you, you, you got no idea. I mean, uh, some of the stuff I would come to in jail and what the hell am I doing here? That's a bad feeling. You don't know why you're in jail. And I learned something really important. Don't wake up your bunkmate and ask him. You know what I mean? Sometimes, sometimes they're cranky, you know, uh, when you wake them up. He wasn't really interested in why I was in there, as a matter of fact. So I had to wait, in front of a, wait until I was in front of the judge to even know what I had done. What I had done was I had driven up on somebody's yard and run over their palmetto tree while they were outside pruning the rose bushes. And because I was in a 62 Buick LeSabre that I got for $100, the tree ripped right out of the ground and got caught under the car. And I drove off with this guy's tree. Now, he's one of those guys that really cares about his lawn. You ever see those people? They pick the weeds and they, they trim at like 7 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday or something. You know, one of those guys that like cares about the appearance of their lawn. You know, where do you get these people? So he was upset about the big hole in his yard that used to be his pomata tree, and he called the police. Well, they found me about 20 blocks down the road, sleeping in the, you know, sleeping in the car with the tree still under the car. Cops always hassled me. It was my hair. Anyway, um, anyway, you know, this went on and on and on. Finally, you know, my scorecard was reading zero. And where do you go if the cops are after you, uh, the, 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 uh, the people who want money are after you, you never showed up for community service, you know, the hospital bills are coming in, you don't have a job, you don't have any money. What, what do you usually do? If you're anything like me, you start to think that mom needs some help around the house, you know? <laughs> so I moved back to New Jersey, and I moved in. I was only going to stay for eight years of, like, the worst drinking of my life. I burnt the house down twice. It was not pretty, you know? She's a wonderful woman. She just couldn't, couldn't put me out on the street, you know? And I was, I was just really bad, and, um, you know... Progression. Alcohol is progressing. It's progressing. It's progressing. You know what I'm saying? It's just getting worse and worse and worse. But it gets worse slowly over the course of time. So like this month kind of feels like last month. It's a little worse. But every, every month that goes by, it gets worse. So it's just, it's getting bad. And I'm at a point, I talked earlier uh, here this weekend about what, what it looked like, me drinking every day. You know, I would... When the weekends would come, I would be so glad because I could drink round the clock. I would get drunk out of my mind, go into a blackout, pass out, come to, start drinking again, go, go into a blackout, pass out, come to. I could get drunk like three or four times in a weekend and somewhere around Sunday afternoon try to start pulling out of it because I knew I'd have to show up like, and be able to actually talk uh, at work on Monday. You know, so it, it just got, it got really ugly and, you know, there were very few friends left around and, you know, I was doing really, really sad things. Anybody in here ever drunken dial? You ever get on the phone, you know, and drunk, you know, really drunk, hey, I haven't talked to you since third grade, but I just want to tell you, I love you, you know, like, oh, you, you come to the next morning, you got these phone numbers, no, I didn't call him, oh, and uh, it, it, it got to the point where I was, I was so concerned, I started cutting the phone lines, you know? So I'm getting drunk. I know I'm going to go for the phone. I better cut the lines. So I cut the lines. 
The problem is I'm an electrician, okay? So I'd get drunk, I'd want to call, I'd go put the lines back together. So it got to the point where I had to be tricky. I'd have to, I'd have to cut it like, you know, here. It even got to the point where I was throwing ladders up onto the side of the house and cutting the phone lines as high as I could. Well, I'd, I'd put the ladder on top of a soapbox or something later when I'm drinking and put them back there. Finally, you couldn't even hear the phone. There was so much static, right? So we had to call the phone repair guy. The phone repair guy comes out and he goes, what the hell? Because it looks like somebody cut your phone line in 35 places and Scott taped it back together. You know? So I'm standing there, I'm going, yeah, that's what I thought it was too. You know? Oh, man. So it just, it got really bad. I started to become violent. I started to, like, answer the front door with handguns, you know, because they were going to come get me or something. You know, it would be like a Girl Scout trying to sell cookies. <laughs> you know? It was just, it really got, it got decadent. It really got decadent. All right, we're going to take a short break here for this very special announcement, and we'll come back with Chris S. and the rest of the story. Hey, everybody, check it out. It's the Monty Man from Take 12 Recovery Radio, and I am so excited to be welcoming Dr. Rob Kelly to the Take 12 Recovery Radio family for his show, The Rob Kelly Hour. Listen, Dr. Kelly has worked with thousands of people, including celebrities of film, music, and sports. And he has lectured at many high-profile universities and hospitals. And now, this world-renowned addiction specialist, well, he's coming to Take 12 Recovery Radio. So mark your calendars for Monday, March 22nd, for the debut show of the Rob Kelly Hour right here at Take12Radio.com and all major podcasting platforms. It's the Rob Kelly Hour. Hey, guys, this is Richie Supa, and you are listening to Take12Radio.com, recovery talk and positive music. This is the place. All right, welcome back to the show. You have tuned into the world's original recovery talk and recovery music radio station, Take 12 Recovery Radio at Take12Radio.com on your internet dial. Now, we've been listening uh, to the first half of Chris S.'s share, which I have affectionately titled The Face-Heating Demon. Uh, By the way, uh, Chris S. and I produced two workshops, one called Walking Through the Big Book and the other Walking Through the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Both of these you can find and download for free at Take12Radio.com and then click on the Recovery Workshops banner. Once there, you'll find both of those workshops. Just click on the links and there they are for you. All right. Without further ado, here's the second half of this amazing share with our friend Chris S. I'm not a stupid guy. I'm, I just did a lot of stupid things, and I'm not a bad guy, just, I, but I did do a lot of bad things. There was some really horrific stuff that went on. And I remember this, this one day, you know, I, I batted around the idea of, uh, of uh, you know, going to AA. As a matter of fact, I had somebody take me to an AA meeting in 1984, and uh, he was a buddy of mine. I said, my drink is really getting bad. I'm taking me to one of them A&A meetings. And I remember going to the AA meeting drunk out of my mind, which I thought was appropriate. <laughs> you know, isn't everybody? I mean, I, I didn't know. So, you know, I, I went into the meeting and I remember sitting down and I, I remember they said a little prayer and uh, then they passed the basket and yeah, put the dollar in. What is this looking like to you, you know? And, uh, you know, somebody shared, I, I had a little resentment today. And, you know, and somebody else said, oh, I got a resentment too. So I don't know what's going on. I have no idea what's going on. And then at the end, everybody gets up, stands up, and holds my hand and says the Lord's Prayer. I got out of there so fast. I didn't come back for six years. You know, six of the worst years of my life. I, I what you know. This one guy grabbed me on the way out and talked to me about sponsorship. I used to race motorcycles. So the only thing I know about sponsorship is if you wear the guy's T-shirt, he'll give you gas money. So I'm like, buddy, I don't need gas money. I don't even have a license. You know, I didn't know what he was talking about. You know what I mean? And uh, 
it was it, it was brutal. But sometime around 1989, it got my attention so bad. Here I am. I'm an electrician still, and I'm trying to put a screw, a ground screw, in a ceiling fixture box, and it had gotten so bad that I actually had a 19-year-old kid who was in charge of me. I was 33. Okay, this 19-year-old kid, take care of Chris today. You know, my boss would say it was embarrassing. And I was trying to put this, this screw in an outlet box, and I, I kept dropping it. I mean, I was shaking so bad that it kept falling. And this, this 19-year-old kid was looking at me. You know how they look at you? And I knew, I knew what he was thinking. He was thinking, you lousy, good-for-nothing, no-account loser. You know, because the one thing that happens during uh, ob obsessive drinking is you can hear people think at you. It's like this heightened sense that you get. So, so he's thinking this at me, and I just can't take it. It was, it was really, really bad. So, uh, so I called up this rehab that I had been to for outpatient to get one of my driver's licenses back, that I used to go to the outpatient drunk. I thought, doesn't everybody? And I used to critique the Father Martin movies. Anybody ever seen the Father Martin movies? Well, I was a big critic of the Father Martin movies, drunk and outpatient. And it, much to the consternation of my counselor, by the way, he didn't think that that was, uh, that was very nice. But I'd be going, oh, Father Martin doesn't know anything about me. You know, and I'd go off on these tirades. Uh, they, they brought in, they didn't catch me with it, but they brought in a breathalyzer to the outpatient just to catch people like me afterward. But anyway, I'd gone through this, and I knew, that there was a, I knew that there was a rehab that you could go to if you needed help. So I call them up, and I say, I'm coming in. They're like, well, first of all, who are you? You know? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I jump through the hoops, and I, you know, I remember making the deal. And the next day, uh, the next day I go in, and, and I sign myself in. And, I mean, I was, I was absolutely shattered. They, they put me on Librium right away. And, and I really, I desperately wanted to, uh, to stay away uh, from alcohol. I mean, for me to sign myself into rehab was, was pretty bad. But what happened, I talked a little bit about it. What happened was um, <clears throat> I didn't participate enough in the recovery process. I didn't participate at all in the recovery process. I was, I was fellowshipping and I was outpatienting and I was doing a lot of things. But I wasn't doing any of the spiritual work that one really needs to do if, you're, if you've gone down the scale as far as I have with alcoholism. So I ended up drinking. Now, now picture this. This is Christmas at the Schroeder's, 1989. And I, I'm drinking whiskey, and I'm out of my mind. And for some, something pissed me off, and I got a resentment. You know how we do. And I got, I got crazy, and I started waving around a 38 caliber handgun, saying, I'm going to kill all of you. My whole family's there. My, my mother, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, animals. I mean, and I'm going to kill, kill all of you. And uh, they didn't really feel comfortable with that. Uh, it wasn't the festive atmosphere they were looking for. So, uh, so they picked up and they, and they took their Christmas elsewhere. And, uh, and that's when I ended up uh, detoxing myself the final time and making that cry to God. God, please help me. Now, uh, you know, I start, I start going to meetings. I'm going to meetings every night. <clears throat> I get a sponsor. God bless him, Phil, Phil, Phil W. God bless him. He's down in Florida now with like 25 years. Uh, 28 years. Uh, he's got a lot of time. Um, he took me on, um, and I really tried to do everything that I thought was being expected of me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I mean, I'm going to meetings. It's six months, a year goes by. I'm just meetings, service, meeting, service. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can, and I am absolutely still completely out of my mind. I'm, I'm one big walk in resentment. I'm a, I'm a huge walk in resentment. I, I would wake up in the morning and the first thing that would click through my mind was, those bastards! You know what I mean? I, I mean, I was just a walking time bomb resentment. I, I had that self-centered fear. I, you know, I, I had uh, guilt, remorse over failed marriages and you know, my, you know, my daughter, I can't see my daughter anymore. I mean, I've got all this, this terminal emotion going on in my life. It was absolutely horrific. And uh, uh, I'm hanging on, you know. I'm, I'm doing all this fellowship stuff. And this guy, Radio Shack Mike, who kind of became friends with me, you know, he was, he was uh, uh, more fearless than some, uh, decided to, like, befriend me. And, you know, we, we were hanging out a little bit, going to some meetings. And 
he had tapes. Uh, he was a tape listener. He went to the New Age bookstores all the time. He was just filling his head with all this weird stuff. And uh, <clears throat> he gave me uh, a, a set of tapes one time. This is the first set he gave me. And they were affirmation tapes. And uh, the point of the affirmation tape was to listen to it and then repeat the affirmations over and over again to try to get some positive self-esteem or something. So I remember standing in front of the mirror, unrecovered alcoholic, going, Chris, you're a wonderful guy. Chris, you're a wonderful guy. Chris, uh, you know, smashing everything. I'm not a wonderful guy. I'm a jerk. Uh, it really didn't work well on me, you know, and... Uh, looking, looking back, trying to treat alcoholism with affirmation tapes is like trying to stop a semi with a cobweb, you know what I mean? So uh, that didn't work. But he gave me another set of tapes. He goes, you're hardcore, dude. You'll like these. And he didn't like them. They, and what they were, were they were an early set of the Joe and Charlie uh, big book study, right? Now, picture this. I'm going to 13 meetings a week. I, I'm a treasurer here. I, I'm a... Uh, you know, I'm a secretary there. I, I'm driving people to meetings. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm going out to the diner. I'm lending AA's money. I mean, I'm going be above and beyond, you know. And, uh, <coughs> and I start listening to these tapes, and this is what those tapes told me. This is what I heard. Chris, you're, you're a fellowship demon. You're the pope of the fellowship. But you have no program because you're not working the exercises out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. So you have no program. So when you go back out and drink, don't tell anybody uh, that AA failed because you haven't even tried AA yet. Now, <clears throat> I had another resentment now because I thought, you know, I was doing all this AA stuff. I was showing up. I was suiting up. You know, 90 and 90, I did like 180 and 90. I mean, I was all over the place. And uh, <clears throat> The other thing that I heard on this tape set, though, was about the unmanageability, about being restless, irritable, and discontented, about, um, about being prey to misery, depression, self-centered fear, guilt, remorse, shame, all that stuff. And uh, um, <clears throat> it resonated with me. It pissed me off, but it resonated with me. You know, so I got a resentment. I threw the tapes off to the side thinking, what do those people know? They're from Arkansas, you know? And, uh, and, but, but here's what happened. Internally, my alcoholism continued to get progressively worse. Internally. I wasn't drinking, but it didn't stop the progression of alcoholism. That, that scared kindergartner was getting more scared every day. Didn't matter how many meetings I was going to. Didn't matter how much coffee I was making. You know what I mean? Uh, and <clears throat> I had an incident where, whereby I, I, I found uh, Mrs. Wright for me. You, you, ever, you ever do that in AA? This is like an early relationship, and uh, I thought, wow, you know, this is going to be great. Um, one of the important things I learned was she actually has to think so, too, you know, for it to work. And uh, we went out for about a month and a half, two months, and it ended up exploding like the Hindenburg, and I was absolutely crushed, you know, I was absolutely crushed. And I remember, I remember showing up at my sponsor's house, and he didn't really have anything more, more for me. He said, did you turn it over? Turn whatever, you know. And so I, I went back home and, and I, was at a, I was at another jumping off place. It was a, a sober bottom. I was about, I was in crisis. I mean, I was very, very close to drinking. And I remembered the tapes. <clears throat> and uh, I pulled them off the shelf and I, and I started listening to them again. Only this time with an open big book and a pad and a pencil. And when Joe and Charlie said, well, this is an exercise and this is how we do it, I actually did it. Um, there, there was really nobody around my area that uh, understood uh, the recovery process when I got sober. It was oral tradition. It was, you know, uh, it was the, the, the typical um, discussion-type group AA that, uh, that you can find. And <clears throat> the first place I heard the recovery process was on, on these tapes. So I started going through these tapes. Something started to happen to me. <clears throat> I remember going to my sponsor with my four-column inventory, my fear list, my, my harms to others, and he goes, what the hell is this? Where's your story? I mean, I, I couldn't even find somebody to listen to my, my fifth step who understood what a fifth step was supposed to be. Uh, I, I said, just let me read this, you know, and he, and he let me read it. And, you know, I started to move on. I took amends seriously. That's not something that was going on uh, a lot where I, uh, where I got sober either. I took that seriously. 
basically because I just didn't want to feel bad anymore. I mean, I felt emotionally so bad inside. I, I reached out for this because I had faith that what these guys were saying was true, that there could be a state called recovery where emotionally you would be placed in a position where you could be healed and, and you could be reasonably happy in every situation that happens in your life. And I just, I kind of took that for granted and I, I worked my way through this. Now, <clears throat> I was sponsoring a little bit at that time just because I was so active. People saw my activity and, rec and recognized it as good sobriety, you know, uh, their mistake. But anyway, uh, um, and they were drinking on me. You ever have sponsors drink on you? Doesn't it make you look bad? You know, somebody will come up to me, is Harry yours? Do you know he's drinking and he's borrowing money and he's hitting on the women? Yeah, Harry's mine. I'll talk to him. You know, these guys are making me look bad. So, so I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring him over to my house. And the way I went through the big book with these tapes, I'm going to do that with them. And this was somewhere around 1992 or 1993. I start taking, uh, taking guys over at my house to the book. And this is where I, I started to learn uh, a very important lesson. And the lesson basically was that the people who would make it through the fourth and the fifth step, the people who would make a really serious run at amends and, and, and then work with other people, every single one of them stayed sober. Every single one of them stayed sober. When they did what the text Alcoholics Anonymous says to do, Every single one of them stayed sober. And the people that balked, the people that ran out of steam, they lost their enthusiasm for this and started to see me as an overreaction to their alcohol problem. And they went and found somebody else who all they asked them to do was be the cookie guy. Chris, man, you're pretty hardcore with all this stuff. I'm going with the cookie guy. You know, most of those people, I'd say almost all of those people are gone. Whether they drank or not, I don't know. I didn't follow them out there. But they're gone. I don't know what happened. I would probably hedge a bet that the majority of them did drink. But they didn't stay in AA. And what I started to see from this process was you have to put enough into the process of Alcoholics Anonymous to get enough back from Alcoholics Anonymous to be able to stay. Does that make any sense? It's all about your participation level. The more you participate, the more, you, more gifts you get back. And it's those gifts that you get back that allow you to stay. So the people who lost their enthusiasm for participation disappeared. You know, I don't know where they are. Uh, every once in a while, some, one of them will come back in, you know, just blown up, you know, just all hell is broken loose, you know, one more debacle. You know, I was okay for a while. You know, that happens quite often. And, uh, uh, but I'm telling you, it, it's, it's a process that, that really works. You know, what is, uh, <clears throat> what's it like now for me in my life? I, uh, I went from being a bad electrician. I mean, I was, I was a bad electrician. I, I would drill down into people's closets by mistake. And, you know, <laughs> I'd go outside, can we look in your closet? And the guy would open up the doors and there'd be like 30 suits covered with plaster. And one of them curled up where my drill bit caught it, you know. I, I was forever blowing things up. Uh, you know, I remember wiring a kitchen addition to the wrong panel. It was a timer panel. So, you know, we walked away from the job, and, uh, and they called us back, and they go, it's funny, the kitchen goes off it's at 8 in the morning and comes on at 8 at night, you know. That's unacceptable. We eat at 6. You know, I'd, I'd hooked the whole kitchen into the timer panel, meaning. I mean, I was forever doing just really, really stupid, really stupid stuff. And uh, I went from being a really bad electrician to, listen, here's what happens. When you, when you participate in the spiritual processes, when you, when you start to do positive things in your life and start to do esteemable things in your life, positive things start to happen. You know, the, there's a cause and effect in the universe that's very precise. <clears throat> you get back what you give. And as you sow, so shall ye reap. It's just, it's a cosmic spiritual principle, and it, and it works. So things started to get better in my life, and I started to get uh, better and better jobs. Um, the last job that I had was, um, 
um, last year was I was in charge of 80 New York City schools, the entire maintenance process, the outside contractors, the in-house crews, you know, all the, all the crazy contracting and stuff that goes on. I mean, you want to talk about, you want to talk about a hectic job. You want to talk about some stress. Try sitting, try sitting in a bunch of meetings with the, the, the New York City, Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens DOE managers, you know? I mean, uh, huger egos you cannot find. They're, they are world-class, and they do not lose. They do not lose an argument. They do not lose a position. And, you know, I, I, was, put in the, I was put in this job, which is about as stressful as you could possibly imagine. And, and, you know, I did it for a year, and I was okay with it. I did a good job with it. You know, one thing that you learn in recovery is to say what you're going to do and then do what you say you're going to do. Now, that sounds very simple, but we don't operate that way. We maneuver, you know, it's inconvenient for us to actually follow through on what we said because situations have changed, so, you know, they'll understand. I mean, we, you know, we do that all the time. We break our, break our word all the time. And I had gotten to the point where I really wanted to follow that spiritual principle, so they started to trust me. And if I said I was going to do something... I would do it, and if it became impossible, I would call them and tell them why it became impossible. I would keep them in the loop. And they really appreciated that. And I, I, I'm very efficient. There's one of the pro promises in the book is you'll become more efficient. And I became more efficient. Listen, my first day in sobriety, you wouldn't have put me in charge of a lemonade stand. You know what I mean? I'd have been embezzling the lemon money, you know. And I, I, I'm telling you. So I'm in charge of millions and millions of dollars of budget on this job. And it was crazy. Um, but I was just offered an opportunity to do something different, to actually work with an organization that uh, they're, they're, one of their main purposes is to improve professional addictive illness treatment in the world. You know, this organization is over in Lebanon right now, training the entire country in addictive illness treatment processes. Uh, they put on symposiums. They're 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 really influential. It's some of the some of the most influential people in addictive illness treatment, and they've asked me to be on their board and to actually work for uh, for the organization. You know, you can't go from being a bad electrician to there. You can't. It's not possible unless you've got God working in your life. It's just too bizarre. It's just too bizarre. I mean, you know, uh, and I, I did a TV show for a while. I mean, I was a host of a TV show. I was host of a, a radio show that went to 80 stations and it was on satellite. I've had the opportunity to do some really amazing things in my life. I get the opportunity to speak a lot of places, to come out to Minneapolis. I've never been to Minneapolis. I get a chance to come out to Minneapolis and meet a lot of you. The things that are that are falling into place in front of me are absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, um, when I first got sober, there was a meeting, a discussion meeting, where these people would come in and they would complain about, you know, I, I, I bought a new house and I can't sell my house. I'm, I'm running two mortgages I'm paying. Oh! And I would sit in the meeting going, two mortgages? What are you complaining about? How do you buy a house? You know what I mean? I got like three bucks. How the hell do you buy a house? You have a house and you're losing it and you're complaining? At least you had one, you know? I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to own houses. Uh, I own cars that were manufactured during the current period of my sobriety, which is, uh, that's something to shoot for, any of you new people, you know? Oh, God. And I don't crash them. You know, I can actually drive around at night. I have zero points on my license. I've got an excellent credit rating. I mean, this is all ridiculous. I didn't even have credit when I came in. I, you know, I, I didn't know what a credit card was. All of these things have been added on to me in my life. Now, it says spiritual recovery has to come before financial recovery. And I found that that was true. I could not have handled a good job until I got involved in recovery. It just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked for me. It wouldn't have worked for me. Uh, 
you know, uh, so, some of the experiences, some of the experiences that I've had with, um, with some of my, my sponsees are unbelievable. Um, one experience that, I, that um, is very interesting is there were, uh, there were some people that I had sponsored who were probably more, more narcotics addict than alcoholic. They, they, they qualified for AA because they had a serious drinking history but they were really pretty much hardcore, hardcore dope fiends. And they ended up going through the big book with me and getting sober, but they just didn't feel really connected in AA. That really, so they were going to, uh, they were going to another, uh, another fellowship. And in this other fellowship, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is not conference-approved literature. And I'm not here to argue that it should be. Every single fellowship has, has, uh, has their own... Um, uh, it should be allowed to decide on their own conference-proof literature, their own process of recovery, their own requirements for membership and everything, absolutely. But, what, but, but the problem was with these guys was that um, they had gotten their recovery experience with the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And they were having to go underground when they were sponsoring people in this other fellowship. They were having to say, listen, uh, come on over to my house and we'll uh, open up the big book you know, just don't tell anybody. And, uh, and so, you know, they finally, they got tired of this. And a, a series of events happened. And we all sat down one day and we decided to, to start a, a fellowship that would be um, conducive to people with hardcore uh, drug problems that the main focus of the fellowship was the recovery process in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And this, uh, this group started about five, six years ago called A&A. Uh, a National Association of Recovered Alcoholics and Addicts. And it's all about getting you right to the solution right away. And there's more than one requirement for membership. Uh, the other requirement for membership is a requirement to, to willingness to go through the steps with an ANA member. If you're not willing to go through the steps with an ANA member, there's the door. That's the other, uh, other requirement. They don't have traditions per se. Uh, but there's been an amazing amount of success with, uh, with this specific process. It started in Burnersville. I'm speaking in Copenhagen in November. And I'm by the literature table. And I'm, I'm talking to somebody. And I start talking about a and And all of a sudden, this girl chirps up. Oh, I'm in a and I go, what? I go over there and I start to talk to her. It spread from America to Iceland to Scandinavia already the ANA Fellowship. And I'm sitting there, there's an ANA member that doesn't even know how it started or where it came from who's been going through the steps. You know, recovery, the things that you do in recovery, it's like taking a rock and throwing it in, in the lake. You don't know where those ripples are going to go. You don't know what effect, positive effect you're going to have on people's lives when you start working with them. You don't know what that you're going to do today that's going to be you know, something that's going to be really important in somebody else's life down the road. But I, I will tell you this, it, it's necessary to come in here and to get your own experience with recovery and then to try to carry the message. Some of the things, you know, I could stand up here for another, another three hours and talk about some of the good things that are happening in my life. But all I want to do is witness to you, you know, from my own experience that there are unbelievable things are possible with this recovery process. I was a loser with a capital L. I was living at mom's with no driver's license, no, nobody to date, no money, the clothes I had in high school. I was a loser with a capital L. And through, through no real, it wasn't, it wasn't through my own efforts that these things have happened. It's absolutely and definitely through the power of God because no power could have brought me from, from being that loser to what the hell is going on in my life today? Nothing, you know? I, I mean, uh, I got the opportunity to start a home group. You know, I, I've, had the, I've had the opportunity to carry the message in a number of different ways. Uh, I've got friends today you have no idea. I mean, I, I'm not looking for any more friends. I've got too many friends. I mean, you know, it, it's, I, I love every one of them, but, but it's, it's, like, it's like my life is so full. Right now, you, you have to be really, uh, really careful about, you know, how you lay out the day because there's so many good things that you can be a part of. There's so many great things that I can be a part of, you know. Uh, 
I wish, I wish every single day had 80 hours in it. I mean, that's how much life I could live today. You know, if you're, if you're new here, you're just coming back, you're in treatment, and, uh, you know, your life isn't really where you feel it should be. Uh, you've got some problems with your family. You know, there's some people that misunderstand you. There's, you've had some bad breaks and misunderstandings, and it's, it's not really the drugs or the alcohol. It's other issues that you have. You know, your problem is different. You know, people just don't understand. And, you know, yeah, you're in trouble a lot, but, you know, it's not really you, you know. If you have any of those thoughts, uh, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. <laughs> that's the requirement for membership, you, you know what I mean? Uh, that's how you identify. Uh, we've all felt that way, um, and life will get better. The work isn't even that hard. The steps are not even that hard. They look hard. They look like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to get through them. It's, trust me, it's not that difficult. You know how long the steps take? They take about a week and 12 hours, or a month and 12 hours, or two years and 12 hours, or seven years and 12 hours. You know, they take about 12 hours. Uh, you can't put 12 hours into something that's going to absolutely phenomenally change your life. Um, Get serious, get a good sponsor, get a good spiritual advisor. Um, practice the steps, clean house, help God, help others, or uh, trust God, help others. And, and be a part of this marvelous thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all I got, thanks. And that's the share of Mr. Chris S. For more of Chris, don't forget to visit us at take12radio.com. Click on the Recovery Workshop banner towards the bottom of the page there. And then click on Walking Through the Big Book or Walking Through the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Lots of filet mignon for your meal of recovery. Listen, we're going to switch gears a little bit and uh, bring to you our closing song. It's a little somber. Something to really make you think. And I think something that you will want to share with others. Here is... Richie Supa with his song, Busy Dying. I'm an addict in recovery named Richie. This is my story. It's time I clean this place Pick my clothes up off the floor Maybe take a shower Cause I can't stand myself no more I spend all my time Wasted getting high I'm always broke From all the dope I'm buying And you can't call this living Busy dying I don't go out that much I hardly ever use the phone I keep my shades pulled down Cause my disease wants me alone Every day's the same I just feed the pain Something that I've always been denying And you can't call this living When you're busy dying I keep doing stupid things no good like picking out a scab all day until it bleeds Over and over, it don't make no sense 
When all you give is more pain in the end In the end Strung out night, down as far as I can fall. Through my bloodshot eyes, I I see the writing on the wall. God, please help me stop. I'm down to my last shot. I'm all out of reasons to keep lying, and you can't call this living. When it takes more than it's given, no, you can't call this living. Is it dying when you're busy dying? Wow, that is some powerful lyrics and some powerful music, Mr. Richie Supa. Hey, listen, until our next broadcast. This is the Monty Man reminding you that we have tons of archives of our shows, over 16 years worth of the best in recovery talk and positive music at Take12Radio.com on your internet dial. Until next time, I am wishing God's perfect serenity for you. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. This is a play. Kitty, 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 kitty. Meow, meow, meow. Woof, woof. <laughs>